0: There are many reasons that we experience paralysis and fail to share the gospel. But one of the most foundational reasons, one of the most pronounced reasons, is that we fail to believe that the gospel can actually reach certain people. We fail. We, we think that there, there are certain people who are unreachable, and that even the gospel is unable to break away their spiritual blindness and change their hearts to grant them the ability to trust in Christ. That's, that's sort of the, the the portrait of the world that we oftentimes, in our disbelief and in our doubts, that we live with. And yet today I want us to look at the book of Acts, particularly we're going to be looking at chapters 24 through 26. And I think what these chapters do for us is that they... They cast us a alternative vision of reality. They help us see the way things truly are, and they paint a new portrait for us—a way of looking at the life and a life and the world around us. You see, the whole book of Acts—if you haven't noticed—the whole book of Acts really, in some ways, the main character is the gospel itself. That throughout the book there are these um, key statements that sort of structure the book. Where, where Luke writes that the Word of God increased. It prevailed mightily. More and more people were reached by the Word, the Gospel, and were saved. And we see the Gospel going to all different types of people and reaching all new different people in different regions. And our passage today, chapters 24 through 26, in many ways is an example of that larger theme. It's it's sort of a focused look on themes that we've seen throughout the book, and that is specifically the movement of the gospel to reach all types of people in all areas. And so in today's sermon, we have three chapters with, respectively, about three scenes. And then in each of those scenes, what I want us to do is I want us to sort of park and look at one of three themes that each of those sections sort of brings out for us. So three scenes with three themes. And our first scene is in chapter 24, which is when Paul appears before Felix. So if you, you may remember that in chapter 20, Paul, t- chapter 21, Paul was heading towards Jerusalem, where then he was arrested in the temple, Um, He was accused of bringing a Gentile in and thereby defiling the temple, which of course wasn't true. But Paul was arrested, and the crowds were so upset with Paul that he nearly was killed by them Them until the Romans came in and were able to get Paul out of there and arrest Paul. Until Paul was arrested in Jerusalem, but then a plot was made against Paul's life um, where there were these Jewish um, men who were took a fast to kill Paul, And the Romans found out about it, and Paul ends up getting sent to Caesarea. Uh, Caesarea was sort of the administrative capital of the region, where the Roman people ruled over that area. And so Paul, by the time we get to chapter 24, he has now made his way to Caesarea, where he stands before the governor, Felix. And so the, the men from Jerusalem, they come and they make their accusation before Felix about Paul, and then Paul makes his defense, and then Paul is kept for some time in Caesarea, um, even giving witness to Felix. The first theme I want us to know in this section, in chapter 24, is the message that Paul gives. The message, when he gives his defense, when he gives his testimony, what is the message that Paul gives? So look with me in chapter 24, verses 14 through 15. Verses 14 through 15, Paul says this, giving his defense, giving his witness before Felix with his accusers nearby, he says this, but this I confess. The the, the man on trial is about to make a confession. But he's not about to confess his guilt, he's about to confess his faith. But this I confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, Having a hope in God, which, which these men themselves accept. Which is what? What is this hope? That there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. Or you look back at chapter 23, verse 6, partway through verse 6 in chapter 23, if you flip over. He told before the Sanhedrin, Paul said likewise. He said, it is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I'm on trial. Paul says the reason I'm on trial is because of the hope of the resurrection of the dead. Or flip over to chapter 26, when Paul will eventually be before Agrippa. He says this in chapter 20 verse, 26 verse 6 through 8. He says, And now I stand here on trial. Why? Because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers, and to which our 12 tribes hope to attain, As they earnestly worship night and day, what is this hope? What is this promise that Israel has been longing for? It's for this hope that I'm accused by the Jews, O king. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? And so we see some, some of the the content here is, first of all, Paul is being accused. He was accused by these, by these Jewish men from Jerusalem of causing a disruption. By causing a riot, which of course would have been of concern to the Romans. Um, He's accused of being against the law. He's accused of being against the temple. And of course, none of these things are true. He did not actually defile the temple, if you remember back in 21. He's not against the law. He was not the one causing the uproar. Rather, those who were against him were causing the uproar. He's not against the Jewish religion, he says. In fact, I worship the God of our fathers. More so, the very reason, the reason you guys are so upset with me, the reason these guys wanted to kill me, the reason they're arresting me, is this. I'm on trial for the very hope that the Old Testament was anticipating. The very thing that the law and the prophets proclaimed. Which is this, the hope of Israel, the thing that the twelve tribes, they longed for, the very promise of God being the resurrection itself. And so if we think back to the Old Testament... And we think of the the law and the prophets that Paul is appealing to. We can go back to Genesis, all the way to Genesis chapter 3. You remember in verse 15 when, when God is giving the curse for humanity's disobedience in Adam and Eve. He also not only gives them a curse, but gives them a promise that there would be a seed from the woman who will then crush the head of the serpent, who will crush Satan's head. There will be someone who will eventually come and will reverse the, cur- the rever- reverse the effects of the curse, who will defeat Satan. And with one of those curses being that we will return to dust from dust, dust we were taken into dust we will return. One of those effects is actually death. That death is a consequence of sin. It's sort of implied. It becomes implicit. We sort of we start to wonder: Will this seed even defeat death itself? And later in the prophets, we get Isaiah. Isaiah talking about how one day God will He will swallow up death. That that the, the ground will actually give birth. They will be born again, so to say. They'll give birth and they will rise again, the people that have been buried. Daniel twelve, verse two talks about that, that final day when the righteous will be set apart and they will experience paradise. And they'll be vindicated, that that is a time associated with the fact that they will be resurrected. That God will come and he will resurrect the just, the righteous, as well as the unrighteous to everlasting contempt. Ezekiel 37, which is one of the most pronounced passages on... This hope of resurrection is this vision where Ezekiel, God gives Ezekiel this vision of a valley of dry bones. You may have heard of this or remember this. A valley of dry bones is this army. They're absolutely dead. They're, they're not just corpses. They're bones that are dried. They're decomposed. They're dead is dead. And yet God says to, to Ezekiel that this, this represents the people of Israel. They will be raised. They will be spiritually raised. And physically raised. I will restore my people entirely. And that hope, this this picture of Ezekiel 37, is surrounded in the book of Ezekiel with, with this hope that God's people would not only be raised, but this resurrection was tied up with other hopes. That Israel would be restored to their land. That there would be the reign of a coming king from David's line. That Israel would be cleansed from her idolatry. That, that God would give them a new covenant in which he would pour out his spirit on them and cause them to walk in obedience. With that grand vision, one could rightly call this, 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 this anticipation, this thing that they were expecting, one could rightly call it the very thing that Paul calls it. The hope of Israel. I'm on trial for the resurrection, for that day when, when people will be raised from the dead and all of those great, grand, restoring promises of God come true. That's what I'm on trial for, the only thing that you guys believe. You notice, we know that when Paul says he's on trial for the resurrection, he's referring to Jesus' resurrection. One man, Jesus Christ, being raised from the dead. And yet the way Paul speaks... He just says, the resurrection, generally, which to the Jewish mind would have reflected what we see in the Old Testament, that there was a coming day when everyone would be raised, what's called the general resurrection, all of humanity being raised. I'm on trial, Paul says, for the hope of not just Jesus being raised, but the hope of all humanity being raised. In other words, get this, Paul sees that in Jesus is the hope, not just, Jesus' resurrection isn't just his own resurrection, but in Jesus is the hope of all resurrection. In Jesus is realized the hopes of our own resurrection. And Paul argues this way in his epistles. In 1 Corinthians 15, if you remember, 1 Corinthians 15 is this very uh, popular passage on the resurrection in which Paul argues that Jesus is like a new Adam. And just as Adam represented us, and on account of Adam's sin, we have all become sinners, and we have all experienced death, and we all experienced a condemnation before God. So Christ is a new Adam. Through his death on the cross brings us justification. And get this, through his resurrection brings us our own resurrection. That in Jesus is realized our own hope for resurrection. And so Jesus, in the Gospel of John, John chapter 11, when Lazarus dies and he's about to raise Lazarus from the dead, he approaches Martha and he says, Martha, do you believe in the hope of a resurrection? And she says, yes, Jesus, I do. I believe that there, there, there's going to be a day of, of that final resurrection when God raises us. And do you remember what Jesus says to her? He says, Martha, I am that resurrection and the life. I embody the hope of that resurrection that you too will experience resurrection on that day by being joined to me, by being united to me, by being, by being connected to me through faith. And we see this in the words of Paul in chapter 26. It, it, notice in chapter 26, verses 22 and 23. He says, To this day I have had the help that comes from God, and so I stand here testifying... Both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, which is this, that the Christ must suffer, and that, notice this, by being the first to rise from the dead. He's the first to rise from the dead. He would then proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. And this is a prominent theme throughout the book of Acts. Maybe you've noticed, but the resurrection, we oftentimes emphasize the cross and Jesus' death, and rightfully so. But in the book of Acts, what gets more more airtime is actually the resurrection of Christ. Jesus, in Jesus, that, that sort of end time resurrection, restoration, has broken in, and with it, the realities of the last days are upon us. So Peter says at Pentecost, he says, the last days are here. Jesus has already embarked the resurrection. And so they start proclaiming, throughout the book of Acts, the apostles proclaim the realities of this end-time salvation. Jesus' resurrection shows that he has been appointed, that that king from David's line. He's enthroned in heaven. In in Acts chapter 2, he's poured out the spirit of this new covenant. He's reigning. He's bringing in the nations, just like the prophet said, Gentiles are even being included in this people. In short, Jesus is the realization of Israel's hope. Israel's long-forward salvation and hope is found in Messiah, Jesus. And believer, this is our message as well. This is the message that we preach as well. Like, I want you to, we, we, like I began this sermon, we, we live in a world where painted before us is a sort of unbelief about the gospel's power to reach people. But just feel the weight of that message. We feel it. People around us feel it. The brokenness in this world. Like, we, we long for things to be made new. We long for a ruler to fix things. We, we know this deep brokenness of our sin down to our bone. And this is a message of hope. This is a message where, where we, we, we see Christ having come and bringing restoration. If you think about, imagine a doctor who has a patient who has a fatal illness, and that doctor is able to get the news that a cure has finally been found for that illness the sort of excitement that it would be to, to be the doctor to be able to share that news like like you are expecting to die but guess what we've been able to some groundbreaking medicine that's going to be able to save you that's the sort of excitement we have but even more to be able to share this message that that is the remedy for everything that we need and it's not like death this 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 hope of resurrection it's not like death is one of those things where the likelihood of death affects 33% of the population, right? Every single one of us faces the prospect of death. Hebrews talks about how we live in the fear of death. That, that death is, it, it, it stamps, as Ecclesiastes says, death sort of stamps this um, idea of nothingness on our life. It doesn't matter what you've achieved in this life, because we're all going to end up six feet under anyways. If, if death is the end, if death is the last word, But Jesus provides hope. Jesus provides an avenue to defeat death, bring about restoration, and give us resurrection itself. This is an absolutely energizing message that we are tasked with sharing with others. Our next scene comes in chapter 25. Chapter 25, we see that Paul stands before Festus. So Festus takes over as the governor in Caesarea. And so Festus uh, visits Jerusalem. Coming on to the office, he visits Jerusalem, where he meets the Jewish leaders there. And they have this idea. They say, let's let's get Festus to send Paul back to Jerusalem. Okay, This is a religious dispute. Festus doesn't need to deal with this. Let's get him sent back to Jerusalem. And you know what? We'll kill him on the way. We'll ambush Paul and we'll get him killed. Well, Festus doesn't agree to that. He says, Roman law is you need to bring your accusations to him face to face. So I'm going to head back to Caesarea. Why don't you make your accusations there? And so they all arrive in Caesarea and Festus um, puts Paul before him. The accusations are made. Paul makes his defense as before. And eventually Festus is like, you know what? I'm not finding anything that you deserve death for. This seems to just be some sort of religious dispute. Paul you know, these guys were asking for you to be tried in Jerusalem. Why don't you go to Jerusalem and you guys just sort this out? And Paul says, hey, my accusers can't be my judge. And also, knowing that it's quite likely that he knows these folks are trying to kill him, like, don't hand me over to the folks that are going to kill me. Paul, as a Roman citizen, apparently had the right to appeal his case before Caesar. And so he appeals to Caesar, where now it will actually be Caesar himself, who will decide his case. And so Paul will be kept in custody until he arrives in Rome. And he sort of spared that ambush. And so some of the things we see here is, first of all, we see that Paul is persecuted. We see that Paul, faithful witness to the gospel, is persecuted, just as he told us in Acts 14 that all who follow Christ will be persecuted, that it's through many trials in Acts 14, he says, that we will inherit... The kingdom of God. You see, wherever the gospel is preached, the gospel will meet opposition in one form or another. But of course, as we see, these accusations are false. The the persecution that Paul faces is groundless. And this is a theme that we see throughout Acts as well, that even with Jesus, when he's put before the Roman rulers, And then the Christians in Acts, when they're put before the Roman rulers, oftentimes it is determined that these Christians are not guilty of anything worthy of death. That Christianity is not um, sort of this threat to the Roman Empire, at least in the traditional way that we think about it. And many folks think that one of Luke's agendas in writing the book of Acts is to actually show that, to show that Christianity is, um, the, the Christians are actually exemplary citizens we're not sort of this disruptive movement at least in the traditional sense of the word and so as a, a, that's a challenge for us as we sort of embody the vision of acts that we should be exemplary citizens we should be people who are who are fantastic citizens submitting to the government we have no reason to be accused we're above reproach but even as paul is persecuted what we see in this scene is that Christ isn't thwarted by the opposition. Christ isn't somehow outmaneuvered. Oh, shucks. They arrested him. Oh, they're trying to kill him. Ah, uh, what am I going to do now? Rather, what we see throughout the book of Acts is Christ actually uses opposition and he uses persecution for his own purposes to advance his gospel. You remember in chapter 19, verse 20 and 21, where it says, that the Word of God increased in chapter 20, and it sort of begins that new section, that that the book of Acts is sort of blocked off by these Word of God increasing verses. Chapter 19, verse 20, begins a new one of those, and then the very next verse, verse 21, Paul says, I must head to Jerusalem, and then from there to Rome. And the rest of this section, from 19:20 to the very end of the book, is the telling of how the gospel goes to Jerusalem, and then to Rome. It's a telling about how the gospel spreads. And what do we see? Paul then, he says he's bound to go to Jerusalem. Even when Christians in different locations say, Hey, Paul, you shouldn't go to Jerusalem. They're going to arrest you. He says, No, I'm bound by the Spirit. I must go to Jerusalem. And finally, at the end of chapter 28, where does the book end? Paul has made it to Rome. He's finally made it to Rome. Well, even here in chapter 25, notice, Christ uses the opposition and the persecution in order to get Paul to Rome. Paul being arrested, we think, well, Paul's not going to make it. Paul, this is, the plan is all whacked out. But even as he's arrested and ends up appealing to the, to the emperor, to Caesar, it's that, notice, that actually gets him to Rome. That Christ isn't thwarted by opposition. He's not thwarted by persecution. Christ actually will use these circumstances to advance his mission. And so we see that as Christ has appointed Paul and has appointed Paul's testimony to spread, so Christ will guide, protect, and direct that message. He's going to guide Paul's circumstances in order to get him and his testimony to Rome. We saw this in chapter 23, verse 11. 23, verse 11, where where Jesus, it says, the Lord stood beside Paul and said this, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. And then the rest of this narrative tells that story. That Christ promises Paul, I am going to get you to Rome. As you testified in Jerusalem, so you will testify in Rome. And this whole narrative tells a story about how Christ is protecting and guiding and directing Paul on that ministry. When his life was threatened in the temple and the Jewish people were about to kill him, what does Christ do? He allows the Romans to arrest him, to grab him from that situation. Paul's citizenship comes into play, protecting him from a flogging. When Paul is put before the Sanhedrin... He's able to say, I'm on trial for the resurrection. They they sort of self-destruct and debate each other. Paul gets out of there. When a plot is made against Paul's life, his nephew finds out about it, and the Romans are made aware, and he gets shipped to Caes- Caesarea. He's escaping there as well. And then here, he appeals to Caesar. In chapter 27 and 28, Christ is going to direct That even when he faces a great storm out on the sea, Christ saves him and the sailors. All of these things are showing that Christ is is behind the scenes directing Paul's affair, guaranteeing that the mission will go forward. This is something we've seen throughout the entire book of Acts. If you remember to chapter 5, Gamaliel, the Jewish leader, says, listen, don't oppose these Christians, because if this movement is of God, you won't be able to stop it. Chapter 12, when Herod opposes the Christians, he's struck down by an angel. Anyone who tries to oppose the advancement of this message, you're not going to be able to do it. Paul gets promises from the Lord, for example, in chapter 18 in Corinth. Keep preaching, I have many people in the city, and no one will touch you. All throughout the book, we see that Christ is reigning and continuing to advance His mission through the mission of His people. And so what do we learn from this? As as Dan was talking to us last week, we can have a great confidence that as we live on mission, Christ is directing our affairs. He is guiding us, that we have an ability to, to sort of take sacrificial risks, to live boldly, to live risky, if you want to use that word. Knowing that failure or success, it's all in Christ's hand guiding us. That it's worth reaching out to your coworker and possibly facing that sort of humiliation or ostracization. It's worth in taking the Tons of time to invest in your children and share the gospel with them. It's worth giving sacrificial amounts of money to advance the gospel. It's worth X, Y, and Z. Christ will use these things. Finally, we see our third scene and our third theme in the end of chapter 25 into 26. And this is Paul before Agrippa. Paul before Agrippa. So Agrippa was a Jewish king. And when Festus took over as governor, Agrippa went and visited him. And so Festus takes the opportunity. He says, now i got to send Paul to Caesar, but I don't exactly know what to tell Caesar he's guilty of because he doesn't really seem to be guilty of anything. And so I'm trying to figure out what to write Caesar. And so he says, Agrippa, why don't you come in, you hear Paul, and you help me figure this out. And so Paul appears before Agrippa. And we get Paul's testimony... In chapter 26. Paul's testimony in chapter 26. Read with me verses 16 to 23. Starting with verses 16 through 18. This Paul is talking about when Christ appeared to him on the road to Damascus. And and Paul says this. He says that Jesus told him, Rise and stand on your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. That when Paul recounts his conversion and his calling to be an apostle, he says that Christ appointed him to be a servant, to go and to declare the things in which he saw, to even reach, notice, the Gentiles, to open their eyes, turning them from darkness to light. And this language that Paul uses is reminiscent of language from the prophet Isaiah, where Isaiah anticipated a day in which he would, in which God would restore Israel, bring them back to the land, restore them as a people, and then he uses this language that he would put light on them, that he would move them from darkness to light, causing his salvations to go to the ends of the earth, even reaching out to the nations, to the Gentiles. And what Paul is doing here, of course we know who fulfills that ultimately, is Christ. Christ is that ultimate servant of the Lord from Isaiah who does just that, who restores God's people, who who brings light to the nations. What Paul is doing here is he sees Christ as fulfilling that, and inasmuch as Paul participates in the mission of Christ and continues that mission of Christ, he sees himself as fulfilling that role as well we saw this in acts chapter 13 where paul uses that servant of the lord language to describe himself even the beginning of acts the beginning of acts luke's right this. luke writes this he says in my first writing the gospel of luke i wrote to you all that jesus began to do and teach The Gospel of Luke is all that Jesus began to do and teach. What's the assumption? That Acts, the book of Acts, is all that Jesus continues to do. Well, how does he do it? The book of Acts is a telling of the story of the apostles. It's historically called the Acts of the Apostles. Christ continues his mission, in other words, through the mission of his people. God's people, on God's mission... By God's power, as we titled the series. And so Paul sees himself fulfilling that sort of salvation program that Isaiah envisioned, of the restoration of God's people, of reaching the nations, of bringing them from darkness to light, of opening their eyes to see the truth. He continues in verse 19, he says, Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but I declared first to those in Damascus and then in Jerusalem and throughout all the region of Judea and also to the Gentiles. Notice that. It fits It fits the program that we saw at the beginning of Acts where Jesus said you're going to receive power and you will be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And Paul is saying Christ appointed me for that mission. I am fulfilling that mission. And now I'm going to the Gentiles that they should repent and turn from God performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. It was for this reason the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. To this day, I have had the help that comes from God, and so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer, and that being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. Turn to chapter 9 with me, if you would, Acts chapter 9. In Acts chapter 9, in Acts chapter 26 actually, Paul is referencing his conversion. He's talking about his conversion, the point at which Christ saved him and appointed him to be an apostle. Going back to chapter 9 and actually going to the point where Paul, where this happened, where Paul was confronted by Christ, look at verses 15 and 16. This is what Christ says to Ananias, the one who was to appear to Paul. Verse 15, But the Lord said to Ananias, Go. For he, this Paul, notice, is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how, he, how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. That, that, that was Paul's conversion experience. And do you notice the language? I am appointing this Paul to be my servant. And to be my witness, not only to the Gentiles, but notice, even to kings. Which is exactly what Paul is now fulfilling here. That Paul is, he's fulfilled that commission by going to the Gentiles throughout the book of Acts. And now here we even see him fulfilling his witness before kings. That Paul is having the opportunity to witness before King Agrippa. And you see the boldness of Paul. We see the boldness of Paul in verses 24 through 29. And as he was saying these things, in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. But Paul said, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I am speaking true and rational words. For the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly. For I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice. For this has not not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. And King Agrippa said to Paul, In a short time would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul said, Whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am except for these chains. Like, put yourself in that situation. Paul is a prisoner. He His life is at stake here. People want to kill him. The Romans could kill him if they want, just like they did to Jesus, even though he was guiltless. And yet what Paul does, all that temptation to shrink back and maybe like tone it down a bit, you know, kind of save yourself. Don't don't get yourself into too much trouble. Paul's like, nah. I'm going to preach. The one on trial, the one being questioned, is putting the the ruler on question. Agrippa, do you believe these things? Wait, wait, who's the one being interrogated here? Paul's interrogating Agrippa. Instead of giving a defense, any sort of legal defense, you notice the type of defense Paul gives? He doesn't defend himself. He gives a defense of the gospel. He's taking the opportunity to evangelize even as he's standing in chains. And think about the, the sort of effect that's intended to have on us as readers. I think that's meant to embolden us. That's meant to excite us. That's meant to give us courage to share the gospel ourselves. If you were to think today, let's imagine that there was a prominent pastor in America who had the opportunity to, to, to stand before a president of the United States. And, and we were able to witness, maybe on television or something, this pastor was just incredibly bold in calling the president to repent and believe the gospel, not holding back at all. Like the president, like you would want to kind of like that, that would intimidate a lot of us, right? To be able to kind of say something so bold to such a great and, and, and powerful leader, and yet we were to see this pastor making these confronting claims and calling to, persu- per, to repent and to persuade. The effect I think that would have on us as believers, and we we would be so encouraged to go out and share the gospel ourselves. Like, wow, look at how the gospel is even reaching presidents and kings and emperors. I want to do that. I want to be a part of that. Man, I haven't been sharing the gospel as well as I should, or as passionately and, and boldly as I should. And I think that's what this passage is meant to do for us. Paul talks in Philippians. Philippians is a letter that Paul writes from, from jail. He says that my imprisonment, get this, my imprisonment has served to advance the gospel. The gospel has made inroads because of my imprisonment. How? Many people on account of my chains have been more emboldened to preach the gospel. And that's what we see here as well. You see, what we see in this passage as a whole is not only a message that is powerful, a message of resurrection and restoration, And not only a Christ who directs and protects and guides that message to ensure that it will will get to where he wants it to go, but we also see that that gospel makes inroads. This is a gospel that makes inroads. We've seen this in the life of Paul. He is getting to the Gentiles. He's getting to kings. The gospel goes where Christ directs it. You see, if Rome in that day, was viewed as something of the geographical climax of the empire. That was the center of the empire. And so the gospel reaching Rome, that was sort of the climax of the gospel's reach geographically. For the gospel to reach kings is like the social climax. The gospel reaches to all places. The gospel reaches to all peoples. You see, this passage shows in miniature what the book of Acts shows on a whole. That the gospel reaches all places and all peoples. And even though there was something unique to Paul's ministry as an apostle and to his mission, we, in as much as we preach that same gospel and that same message, we participate in that same mission. In as much as Paul was appointed to be sort of that unique Um, A servant from Isaiah falling in the footsteps of Christ to see light proclaimed among the nations. Inasmuch as we preach that same message, that vision that Isaiah has of, of of the nations turning in repentance to the risen Christ, that is a message that we carry as well. That's a program that we participate as well. That's a mission of God that we're caught up in as well. So so if, if we live life with this painting of the world where we have doubts about the gospel's ability to reach, about the gospel's ability to really like make inroads, like, are those people really reachable? Have this passage just absolutely paint a different picture for you. Walk out the doors today with a different view of the world. Let this be an apocalypse, a revelation of the way things really are. Christ is on the throne, He is advancing His gospel, and we get to be a part of that. He is turning the nations to Himself. And what what does Isaiah say? What does God say through Isaiah in in the prophet Isaiah? He says, I will accomplish my purpose. My counsel will stand. That being His mission to save the nations. So we go back to Ezekiel 37. And I want to imagine you, you yourself being Ezekiel, standing with that vision of the dry, valley of dry bones, dead as dead can be dry bones, representing the spiritual deadness and state of Israel. God asks Ezekiel, Ezekiel, can these bones live? By all human standards, it'd be no. No way. And we rub shoulders with people every day, who we say, no way. They're too far away from the gospel. They're too stuck in their unbelief. They're dead spiritually. Well, newsflash. So are all of us. That's exactly what the gospel does. Those are exactly the sort of people the gospel reaches. And what, is, what does Ezekiel say? He says rightly to God. God, you know. You know if these bones can be raised. And so what does God do in that vision? He takes Flesh and puts flesh back on. He takes joints and he puts joints back on. And he raises these people to life. That's the sort of message we wield when we preach the gospel. A message that is able to make dead people living people. A message that is a conduit of salvation when it is believed by faith. And I hope that that's an encouragement to you. It doesn't mean that everyone that we preach the gospel to will believe. We see here that there are a lot of Jewish people that oppose Paul. They didn't believe. We don't necessarily get any sort of evidence that Agrippa, Festus, or Felix converted. But guess what? The gospel makes inroads. God will save those whom he intends to save. And I hope that you're encouraged by the vision that Acts presents us. As we get ready to take the Lord's Supper, we'll have the musicians come forward. And as we take the Lord's Supper this morning, I want us to reflect and sort of revel in the appreciation that we should have as those people who ourselves were dead in our sin that the gospel reached. That we were a part of that valley of dry bones, dead as dead can be. As Paul says in Ephesians 2, we were dead in our trespasses and sins, but through Christ, through his resurrection, and being caught up in his resurrection on account of our faith, we have been raised with Christ. Christ gave us the Lord's Supper with baptism as these pictures, these emblems, backed with his promises, because he knew that we are a people who are doubting, we are a people who struggle with with disbelief. And he wanted to remind us, among other things, that the gospel is powerful to save, that he is powerful to save. He's powerful to save our neighbors. He's powerful to save the person on the other side of the cubicle. He's powerful to save our children. He's powerful to save. And he's also powerful enough to have saved us. The bread and the wine representing his body and his his death given for us as a sacrifice for our sin. And so Jesus... On the night when he was betrayed, he took the bread after supper. And giving thanks, he broke it and said, This bread is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup and said, This cup, it's that new covenant the prophets foretold. It's a new covenant in my blood. Through my death, I will purchase a new covenant for you. Do this. In remembrance of me. And as Paul tells us, for as often as we eat the bread and drink the cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's stand and we'll continue singing.